if we continue in looking at the uh, opening chapters of Matthew, looking at the teachings of Jesus Christ, talking about our big subject heading that we've been dealing with, which is being on duty for Christ. We've been talking about many different aspects of this and what this means. We've been talking about how this uh, plays out in our lives. We have looked through the first teachings of Jesus Christ in chapter 5. We've made it over into chapter 6 and we've been kind of hitting here or there at different areas. And so I know it's kind of segmented and uh, somewhat uh, uh, fractured in its delivery. But I hope that we can just recap real quickly before moving on this morning. If you look from chapter 6 in verse 1 going all the way down to uh, to the uh, verse um, around 18, then you have this section of teaching where Christ is talking about doing righteousness, or give, as he describes here, giving of alms. But in the bigger picture, it is doing righteousness, doing righteous acts. In particular, he's talking about giving, and we talked about the three defining characteristics, daily activities that should surround a Christian's life and that is giving, praying, and fasting. And we talked about how we should be working those into our daily routines. We talked about kind of, you know, how do you pencil that in? How do you make that and surround your day around those things? Okay. So we talked about with giving, it's not just writing a check to the Red Cross or Hannah Home or whatever it may be every, uh, every day. It is actually a giving of your time, giving of prayer, giving of love, giving of compassion, giving of your abilities that God has blessed us with, giving the gifts that he has given us to others, okay? So we have discussed before about things like what are the first fruit offerings, so the uh, the commandment in the Old Testament that we were to return the first 10% of all of our goods, our growth, the things God has prospered us with, we were returning that to God. Okay, that was called the first fruits offering. And so we talk about this with our giving, that God has given us abilities and gifts by the Holy Spirit. And so we are, you know, we are due, it is part of our duty to return those things to God and we return them by using them. Okay. So things that are not used become weak, they become useless, okay? So there's the idea of exercising and using these things, giving them to God's service. We talked about prayer. We talked about how prayer should be central to our lives. We discussed how prayer all too often is not central to our lives, how it's so easy to forget to pray for things, how we have really good intentions and really poor execution. And I may be speaking only for myself, um, but I know that in my own life, it's very difficult sometimes for me to think about and pray as I should pray. Okay, And that is not a should in the sense that it is your obligation and you have three times a day you're supposed to do it. We're not talking about an Islam kind of point of view that there's five times of prayer and you better get up and do them or else you're failing. And you're, you know, that is, you know, some people really thrive on that, you know, rigidity. Okay. They thrive on that organization, man. If you and I'm, I'm kind of like that. If you give me X, Y, Z to do in the day, and I've got it planned out, and I've got, you know, then I'm, I'm usually a little better than if it's just like 
go figure it out on your own. Find your own way to do this, okay? This enters in with, like, school and studying and stuff. If I... If you say, well, you can learn all these things without going to school, well, that's true. But in my personality, if I don't have a curriculum and something setting me up to say, read this chapter, that chapter, this book, that book, this, then I'm, I'm done. I, my 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 kind of personal uh, ability to research that out and figure out how to study the exact same things without somebody basically holding me to it is very is very slim to none. So there's people who thrive on that organized, scheduled, you know, very type A uh, kind of thing, but that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about praying. It's not an ought to or a um, an obligation in the sense that if you miss your one, you're out. Or one of the, it's more that it's an ought to. It is an obligation in the way of this is how we find peace. This is how we find security. This is how we find direction. So it's not. It's 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 almost like going back to the gym. Okay. Now everybody ought to work out, right? Okay, everybody has that that need from our body standpoint. You need to be doing things. You don't need to be just sitting on the couch 24-7. All sorts of things and problems arise from that, okay? So we talk about this. You need to get up. You need to be active. This goes all the way to children's uh, programs. You know, if you watch the Disney Channel or whatever, they're all big about, you know, activity. Now get up, run around, do stuff. Don't just sit here and watch the Disney Channel. It's kind of funny that Disney Channel is telling you not to watch the Disney Channel and ultimately all you do is continue to watch the Disney Channel as they pump cartoon after cartoon after that, but they try to, you know, satisfy their conscience in the middle of that, say, hey, go eat an apple and walk around for 30 minutes, you know. But the idea of prayer comes along with that. It is a source of spiritual healthiness for us. So our ought to, our obligation in it is that if we want to find more peace, joy, happiness, security, direction in our lives we've got this never-ending source and we ought to use it because it's really it's really full of blessings and insurmountable hope for us and that's why we should turn in prayer so as we said before prayer is meant to be a deeper connective force between the creator and man it's there to be a discussion okay and he was talking about praying in hypocrisy praying out in public praying for people just to see you and he said you have your reward if that's your case people who saw you congratulations you've got the uh the uh, accolades of men okay now i'm going to challenge you and and remind us all that the accolades of men are very very fleeting okay if that's all you got to put up on the mantle Man, you got a poor existence. So prayer is meant to be a discussion with the almighty creator of heaven and earth and the universe, the eternal one that has existed outside of our time space, the one who has always been and always will be the source of wisdom and knowledge. That's the one that we are going to in a simple form of prayer. And he talks about doing it in private in the sense of your need to have that time where you sit down and talk to God, okay? That it shouldn't just be that we're praying out in public over our food, and it shouldn't just be that we're... But that you should have time where you enter into a private conversation with your Father. 
And so we highlighted some different areas of prayer and what we should look at, things like praying to sit for sincerity, praying to communicate and not just to be heard, and praying utmost for forgiveness and not for gain. So it's not just all about me, 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 God, give me this, God, I need this, God, this is where I'm struggling, but it's God, forgive me, God, help me to forgive others, you know, because he caveats that and says that if you don't forgive others, I will not forgive you. So there's obviously some very important things that come through prayer, okay? And lastly, what we didn't get to, but what we were going to briefly discuss was fasting. And that was the other, the other uh, characteristic or thing that we are called to do each day, okay? So the things that we should be looking at. And again, we talked about this as we were going through the, uh, the Lent schedule, as we were doing that on Wednesday night and talking about that, looking at the different ways we can fast and how we can use those to emphasize certain areas, emphasize certain things, okay? So as we were fasting from like, you know, social media, it was an idea of relying and looking to Christ as your authenticator, okay? So instead of relying on people's opinions and the likes on Facebook as being your sole source of joy, and again, come on now. Um, If that is where we get our hope from, that I get enough likes on Facebook, then Man, our existence is just not meeting the level that it could, okay? But that's where we kind of use that fasting to redirect and reorient in our minds and our hearts. So you fast from the food that we did in the first week, and the whole idea was finding our sufficiency in God and His Word. As Christ told us in the temptation in the wilderness, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The idea that we are sustained not by just the natural food, but by God on a daily basis. So how do we come to that revelation? How do we reorient our minds and our hearts daily or weekly or monthly, however often we need it? How do we do that? How do we kind of get all the other stuff out of the way so that we can really, truly grab hold of that concept? Well, a good way to start is cutting a meal out, okay? Cut that, cut that lunch time out and instead spend that 30 minutes lunch time at work with your Bible open and with your prayers with God. And it helps to reorient you. And I promise you, as we looked through it that week, it was not that hard to do by the end of the week. In fact, we kind of laughed and said it was the social media, TV, radio, and the unnecessary purchases that ended up being the most hard thing for us to do. You would think the food thing was, man, we are woefully addicted to food and lunch times. You know, these mealtime things that we establish, I mean, especially if you've got kids, you've got this routine, you got to have it by 530, you got to have showers by 630, you got to be in bed by 7. I mean, all these routines that's built around our lives. So to cut that out, it's like, I don't know what to do. But we were talking about it's a, it's a repeal and replace, you know, it's we're taking away this lunchtime meal or this daily meal or whatever it may be. And we're replacing it with study of the word of God and communion with God. So you're kind of replacing those aspects, and in that you're going to find a deeper connection. You're going to find a more sustaining, uh, or a, a more sustaining thing than just the natural food. You're going to find that God is our all-sufficient aid or an all-sufficient help. So we look at fasting as not supposed to be punitive, and that's what when you see this example that Christ talking about these people disfiguring their faces, they're making themselves look pitiful. Oh, I'm fasting, and the whole reason they're doing it is for that reward of men. They want men to see them doing this and say, oh, 
Those must be some really pious people. They must be some really godly people. Look at how disfigured they are. Look at how much they're fasting. Oh, they're so amazing. They're holy rollers. I wish I could be like them. And Christ said, that's not even, that's, that's not even why you do it. If you do it for that, congratulations, you've got your reward. And again, as we said, if that's what you're putting up on the mantle, if that's the trophy you've got, is that the people around you think you're really holy when really on the inside you're a despicable, wicked, awful person, congratulations, okay? You have gained no more satisfaction. You've gained no more true peace, joy. You've gained nothing. Says So instead, I, he says, I want you to do it for the true reasons. Do it to reorient. Do it to draw closer to me. Do it in a way that I am rewarding you. You're gaining rewards from the Father in heaven who sees it, not man on earth who sees it. So you can read out of Isaiah 58 and 5 if you want to that God in this way kind of describes the fast he is looking for. And he's talking about it's not a punitive fast. It's not to afflict yourself in the sense that you can walk around and go, oh, you know, I have I have tried myself. I've laid myself bare. I've, uh, you know, borne all my sorrows for you, God. Now, what are you going to give me in return? He says it wasn't for that purpose. The purpose of the fast was to reorient the person. And even in there, he gives an idea of repealing and replacing. He says, if you're going to fast, don't just fast from food to say that you're fasting from it. Instead, take that food and give it to the poor. He says, replace what you would have been doing there. Instead of just walking around or even, even before God's presence saying, look at how I gave up food for you. Instead, no, give that food to someone else. Use that time of fasting for greater communion with God. So those three things, giving, praying, and fasting, those are three defining characteristics of the walk of the Christian life. It's what Christ said was the three defining characteristics. It's what Christ told us to do. And that's what we tried to get back to over and over and over again with this as we're going through this. And what the whole purpose of starting this was is that it's fine and it's right and it's good to have all these great studies and theological principles hemmed up in your mind, okay? It's great to know all about soteriology and understand all the inner workings of it and everything. But if it's not applied to your life, it doesn't matter. You can know all about grace, and if you're not more gracious, it has done nothing for you. You can know all about humility and humbleness and mercy and compassion and talk about how Christ is this ever-flowing fountain of those things. But if it's not affecting your life, then what's the point? It has done nothing for you. You are doing nothing with it. So we try to get back to saying, well, what did Christ tell us to do? What was Christ telling us was, was the markers of a Christian, of a follower of him. It wasn't someone who just ran around and spouted a bunch of doctrine. It wasn't someone who just went around and spouted a bunch of things about how salvation occurs and how proper baptism occurs and how proper communion occurs. He said, those aren't the things that he says in here. He says, what makes you a follower of me is if you're following what I tell you to do. And what I tell you to do is trust in me, love others, pray for forgiveness, give to those who have need, pray fast, all these things. That's why we need to grab hold of this. Because the world today has this image of what a Christian is, and it's not what Christ said. Okay? 
They had this idea of a Christian as being this holy roller, doesn't smoke, doesn't cuss, doesn't dip, never talks about or reads or watches R-rated movies, never does, and that's what a Christian is, okay? They also have very negative connotations about it because of things that goofy Christians have said. So it's just the, the connection is not there. The, the, the one for one about what a Christian really is is not there. The world doesn't have an idea about what a Christian is because we are not following what Christ said to do. I use this example all the time that we talk about you know, you know, pro-life and all these things and we talk about loving your enemies and then in the same, you know, same statement... Okay, so-called professing Christians who are on one side, and it's even this, I use politicians because it's just the most evident thing, okay? So you'll have these politicians who are one side are standing up and saying they're so pro-Christian values, okay? And they'll be all over their ads and all this stuff. And then the other side of that, they're also making statements about nuking places like the Middle East and turning it all to glass, Okay. Well, the only problem with that is, is that you're murdering hundreds of thousands of people, okay? And that does not G and haw, thank you, with the statement, love your enemies, okay? It doesn't G and haw when you said, I'm okay with melting people to nothingness, and I'm a Christian, okay? So that's why the world is confused by us. That's why the world just rejects us wholeheartedly. Because we, or I said some, I guess you should say, I guess we all are guilty of it in some case, form, or fashion. But we have this disconnect, so that's why it's important for us to grab hold. What did Christ say to do? Because that's what we are to do, and when we do that, we are Christians, okay? So now, fast-forwarding just a little bit, as we talked about that, he continues on, starting in verse uh, starting in verse uh, 19, and he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on it. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? 
Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So as we dive into this, and obviously we, in keeping with our track record, will not get through all of it. Um, but as we look at this, we do want to break it apart just a little bit in the very first few verses. So beginning with verse 19, he says, Lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth, where the moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So he gives this this implication. Now we're kind of changing gears just a little bit, but not really, okay? Because what you're going to see is this is a building principle. So we started off talking about giving, praying, and fasting. Well, now he's going to show you what the greatest obstacles to that are, okay? And first off is giving. Really hard to give when you love your stuff more than other people, right? It's really hard to give when you love your stuff more than other people. So when I love my stuff more than other people, I am not willing to part with it because I love it. It's mine. I've worked hard for it, okay? This plays into a lot of kind of social justice stuff. I got a job. I worked hard. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got to where I am. So why should I just give it away to people who are just lazy, no good, they don't do anything, and they just want everything free on a platter? Why should I do that? Really hard to give up your stuff when you love it so much and when you love it more than other people. And here are some things. These are kind of the priorities of, of what Christ is getting at. And he connects it to the heart issue we've been talking about all through chapter 5 and into chapter 6. This is an issue of the heart. And he says so. He says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He connects it to the heart. What is your obstacle for giving? Well, it's my stuff. Well, why am I so in love with my stuff? Because that's where my treasure is and that's where my heart is. Why am I so impatient about time? Why am I so impatient about the things that I'm doing in life? Because my heart and my treasure is my time, okay? I have me time. I need me time. I need time to myself to get me feeling better about myself. And when you come in and interrupt that, now you have messed with my treasure, and that's where my heart is, and now I'm mad, angry, vengeful, whatever. There's a statement that uh, I heard a brother say once that I thought was, was a really profound when he was talking about pride, and he was talking about the two sides of pride being fear and lust. And basically he said, our greatest fear is losing our greatest lust, okay? And that's what all this gets down to, and the lust is not just lust of the flesh as in, you know, looking at a woman or whatever like Christ was talking about in chapter 5, it's also all the other things we lust after, money, success, fame, you know, approval by other people. You know, you hear about peer pressure, but we also like peer approval, 
Okay, that's why people do a lot of, you know, weird and goofy stuff, okay? Because they want the approval of their peers. They want their friends to think they're cool. They want the people they hang out with to think they're the most, you know, awesome, baddest, partyingest, whatever. And that's what gets us into a lot of these issues. That is our lust. That's where our treasure is. That's where our heart is desiring, okay? And so what is our greatest fear? Well, our greatest fear is losing those things. So if our lust is money, if our treasure is money, if that's where we put our greatest lust, or our greatest fear is losing that money. So what are we going to do? Everything we can to keep that money, okay? So again, giving is right out the window. That just seems like a frivolous and stupid expenditure, okay? Why would we give up the thing that we care for so much? If it's fame and success, well, that just means you've got to push yourself to higher and greater limits to keep people thinking you are the coolest, baddest, most awesomest person in the world, okay? So whatever that and whatever that kind of plays out into, and I think it plays out into a lot of different and ridiculous ways, but that is the thing we desire the most, and so that is what we're the most fearful of losing, So our greatest fear is losing our greatest lust. So then we ask the question, well, what is our greatest lust? What is it that is in our lives that we look at as the greatest thing we want, the thing that we just have to have, the thing that we cannot live without? So where are our priorities? And this again connects to the heart. Where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. And what he's saying is, is whatever you treasure is going to corrupt, pull, drag your heart in that direction. Because if I put it as the highest thing in my life, if I put it as the highest esteem in my life, the thing that I look forward to the most, ultimately that is going to capture my heart and draw me away. Okay. You see this play out in the Old Testament over and over and over again, okay? It's why if you ever go back and read through like Exodus and Leviticus and those places where God makes special, um, I'll say recommendations, we'll use it that way, uh, to the children of Israel. And he says, do not go marry these women, whoever it may be, the Midianites, the Amalekites, whoever it is. And you say, well, why is God so interested in who they marry, okay? I think that's getting a little nitpicky, God. All right, maybe you hear the phrase, well, I mean, it's love. Can't you love whoever you want to love, God? I mean, why are you standing in the way of people? I mean, they can't help who they love, so why would you stop them from doing that? Well, God had a reason for it. He said, because they don't fear me. They worship other gods. And I guarantee you that if you go in and marry these women, they're going to draw you away from me, and ultimately you are going to start serving them. Okay? Where your heart is, you know, my lovey-dovey little heart that loves my sweet little lady. And here she is, a little Midianite, and she loves Baal and, and all these other, you know, false gods and doesn't love Jehovah. And ultimately, I'm going to cave in and do what my lovey-dovey little wife says, okay? This follows on into Solomon, who Solomon was the son of David, the wisest, perceived to be the wisest man on earth, Okay? And as, you know, Christ later uses him in an example here, he also obviously was the best-dressed homie in the place, okay? Because he obviously had enough money and wisdom, and he could put on some kicks that apparently was the greatest and was world-renowned. Because Christ some, you know, four or five hundred years later is using him, okay? So he's like the Versace guy or the Gucci guy or whatever um, that you would put up and say, hey, this is, this. look at this guy. You see how he dresses, Okay. 
But Solomon had more wisdom. His wisdom was world-renowned because what, what's the story? He asked God for wisdom. He didn't ask God for riches. And instead, God gave him wisdom and riches. And so he just had this profound amount of wisdom. So you would think he would be able to make smart decisions, right? All the wisdom of all the world had all wisdom greater than anybody else can make these really just crazy decisions like getting a real mom and a fake mom to figure out which one's the real mom. Hey, cut the baby in half. And the real mom, she knows because of his wisdom, is not going to let you cut the baby in half. So she's going to give the baby up to the fake mom. And boom, now you know who the real mom is. I mean, that's just, I, I would not think that way. Okay, my first inclination wouldn't be cut the baby in half. All right. Guy was smart. He knew what he was doing. Except when it came to his like 700 concubines. And it will even say that Solomon was drawn away. Now, Solomon is the son of David, was the prophesied, I mean, lineage of Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, he was a stand-up guy. Until he started letting all his wives and concubines start working on him with their Baal worship and all these things. And now, all of a sudden, he's getting drawn away to where Solomon, the one who built the temple, okay, the first temple ever constructed for God at the end of his life, is also building temples and pillars and things for Baal and Ashtaroth, drawn away to worshiping false gods. Smartest dude on the planet. Dumbest mistake in the world. All because he was drawn away by the heart that was drawn away by his women. That's not knocking any of our women. Just saying that was his situation. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, so we go through this and if we look at this very naturally and literally and in the context of what he's talking about, he's very much focusing on money. He's very much focusing on riches, something that he will repeat when he is talking to the rich young ruler who comes in and asks him, Lord, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. And the man went away very sorrowful because he had many riches and Christ retorts to that and tells his disciples how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven because it is an obstacle because it is something that where people have amassed great riches they also put their treasure their heart in that place and it's hard to go away from that and so he says here very literally talking about money, treasures, lay up not yourself, treasures upon the earth. He said, because these things are corruptible. They're also, and I had to say insecure, but what I'm, uh, I'm going to make up the word. They're also theftable. Okay. All right. I couldn't think another a bull uh, for being able to be stolen. Um, stealable, stolable. All right. So you see that Christ is saying, look at where you're putting your treasures and look at how frail they are. Just think about it. How many of us have ever had $20 in our pocket that we didn't know was there? How long did it last? Okay. How many of us reach in our pocket and go, oh my goodness, I got a 20 I didn't know about it. And then all of a sudden, hey, look, there's a DVD that I can buy. Boom, it's done. Or we go to like five guys and we buy a burger, okay, and you've spent 20 bucks. On yourself, by yourself, one burger, that's all it takes. 
But that's how quickly riches go away. Beyond the point of what he's talking about is literal corruptible uh, substances. So if you if you ever wanted any kind of history lesson or any kind of backstory context of this, a lot of the Near Eastern cultures over there, it's all in raiments. You know, you've heard of purple raiments of silk and gold and all these things. Well, guess what? Can just eat that right up. That little old moth that we still have eating up our wool sweaters in our closets today. So all the prestige that a glorious decked out silk robe would have, you know, come into. I mean, I think when I think about things like silk shirts and stuff, all I can think of is what I did in the middle school, you know, early 90s kind of days when everybody had a silk shirt. And I'm so glad that died um, completely and utterly. It has never been resurrected. Okay. Um, But you think about the silk shirt phenomenon. Okay. Everybody had to have one. Everybody had to have ties that were 100% silk. You know, all these things. Silk is this very highly, uh, you know, traded commodity. And it can be completely destroyed by a moth. How much power does a moth have? Okay. Now, I know there's some people who really freak out about a moth flying in the house or whatever. It's not actually ever going to hurt you. Even the largest moth, those huge moths that you see on the baseball fields around those huge lights, the big old green ones that come flying down like torpedoes or pterodactyls or whatever it may be, and launch upon your head, even they can't hurt you. Okay, Maybe they catch you like a stray glance across the eye or something. You get a little bruise, whatever. They can't hurt you, but they can eat up the most precious thing that some people have. It's corruptible. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. The 20 bucks in your pocket doesn't last. These things don't last. The things of the world don't last. If you're talking about making investments, these are poor investments. People will look at investment property like down on the coast and you say, oh, all, I mean, it's, and it's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And it's like, oh, what a great investment. Yeah, until, you know, a hurricane and it's gone. Okay, or until a rogue wave comes along and washes the beach out from under you and boom, it's gone. I mean, it's so frail, and yet people put such a high price on it. Ultimately, these things are going to pass away. And even if you bought that investment property and you put all your heart and soul into it and got all the way down the road and it, it lasted, you know, it, it lasted past hurricanes and everything, there's going to come a time that thing's going to crumble down and fall away and be gone, and it's going to be a memory. Okay? So these things never last. The things in the world never last. If it's not corrupted, it's going to get stolen. Okay, so you have built up all of this massive amounts of wealth and whoops, in one fell swoop, it's all gone. And what do you do? What's the recourse? There is none. How did everyone's 401k, you know, uh, do during the recession time? Didn't do too well, did it? Lost a lot of money. Who can you gripe to about that to get that back? No one. It's gone. Okay. All you can do is work a little bit longer because it is gone. There is no recourse. So when we're talking about putting our trust in these kind of untrustworthy sources, it really gets down to we view, and I know we're kind of focusing really specifically on money, but this does have kind of broader applications. Um, but it really focuses on three different aspects of our life that we really we, we need to get a handle on. Okay, And that's what we think money and these kind of things do for us. And number one is ability. Okay, If I have money, I can buy stuff, right? If I don't have money, I can't buy stuff. 
All right, so the opposite of having money is poverty, and that would be where we don't have the ability to do, buy, purchase the things that we would like to purchase, whether that's the very basic necessities of food and clothing and those kind of things, or just if you're, let's say we're low income, middle, or low, low class, middle class, wherever that kind of divide is in there, we just can't buy the things we want, okay? I want, you know, that Corvette and all I can settle for is a Prius. I want that, you know, new $400 pair of Jordans and all I can get is the uh, $4 pair of Walmart specials or whatever it may be that people put emphasis and, and kind of desires on all these things that we want to buy. And when we don't have the money to do it, we don't have the ability. Okay. And that strains us. That stresses us out. That gives us anxiety. Okay. That's one of the biggest arguments that you hear over and over again in marriage. What is it about? Money. Money, money, money. Biggest argument in marriages is money. It's not which end of the toothpaste that you squeeze from, which apparently is also a biggie. You know, but I'm always like, does that really matter? Does the toothpaste come out? Ultimately, you're all going to convert to squeezing from the bottom because at some point in time you have to. Okay. That is just the nature of things. That's why I always say if you squeeze from the bottom, just sit back and relax. It's kind of you know, like this idea. You've already won. At some point in time, the middle squeezer is going to have to move to the bottom. Okay? All right? Once you squeeze out the first half, you've got to go to the bottom and get the second half. All right? Boom. There you go. You won. It's passive aggressive. Leave it alone. Okay? Don't argue about that. The same, thing, the same thing that you see with marriage and money. They, spouses argue in marriages about money for one reason. Insecurity. Lack of ability. Okay. Either they want that money because they want to spend it on themselves, or together they stress out about the fact that between the two of them, there's not enough money to do what they feel like has to be done. Whether that's paying for a house, paying for insurance, paying for cars, paying for food, paying for... Or we're on such a tight budget that if one of these little cogs falls out here, then it's really going to put a stressor on us. If the car breaks and now i got to buy a $400 alternator, now how am I going to fit that in with also buying groceries the next week? So it's not a, it's not something that is a poke fun, get over it, you know. You know that that's that's not what I'm kind of getting at with this. It is a real stressor. It is a real anxiety builder. It's sometimes something that even in all your planning and all your Dave Ramseying and all those things, there's still stuff that happens and you can't help it. Okay. But it's that ability. That's what makes us feel good. Having the ability. If I had the million dollars in the bank account and it didn't matter if that $400 alternator breaks down, who cares? I'll go buy another car. I'll go buy three and then I'll have three spare alternators to use. Because I got all the money in the world, I have all the ability to get what I want as well as what I may need. The second thing that it does is security. It makes us feel happy and secure and cozy and warm. Because if I have the ability to do everything that I want to do, then any circumstance that arises will never shake my security. I can do it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if my car breaks down. It doesn't matter if my house blows away. It doesn't matter if I get sick or whatever. I've got the ability to do what I want to do. Therefore, I am secure. I feel secure. We also will buy things that we feel makes us more secure. We buy things like insurance. We buy security systems. We buy 401ks. We buy all these things to provide for the future. So backwards, forwards, up, down, left, right, we are secure. We're stable. We know that if anything happens, we are going to be okay. 
And the last thing it buys us is what we think that it buys us is happiness. Because if A plus B equals C, okay, I've got my ability and I've got my security, therefore I am happy. If not having ability breeds insecurity, and that's what brings unhappiness in a marriage, then having ability and having security brings happiness, right? All I need is enough money to be able to buy what I want to and enough money to provide that security to where I don't have to worry about anything, and therefore I have happiness. And that's a piece of cake, isn't it? That's been the formula that every human being in the world has operated off of. This goes all the way back. All the way back. All the way back even to, you'd say, the Garden of Eden. The first thing that Adam and Eve look for is some clothes to put on to cover their nakedness. They wanted security. They needed that protection. You go forward from that in the Old Testament times as we've been looking at in Wednesday nights, they start building cities, they start building walls, they start, I mean, all these things start developing to feed this need for ability and security. And then you go forward past beyond that and you see that as we continue to look for things in our lives to breed ability and security, it is money in and out and all around that gives us this, that we think gives us these things. And so therefore, we think that this is what makes us happy. Full belly, well-rested, secured in my surroundings. Therefore, I am happy. Okay? So, if that is how our heart is oriented, if that's where our treasure is oriented, that's where our heart is going to be. Okay? So, we... And this is, this is what is taught, okay? Maybe we kind of look at this from a biblical aspect, but you can also look from it from a scientific, you know, sociological kind of point of view as well. Because I know in nursing school, and we probably mentioned this before, there's that, that lovely little thing that any kind of person who's done any kind of biology thing has gone over Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and we've probably brought this up here before. The Maslow's hierarchy of needs was if you satisfy the natural things first and they are stable. Food, raiment, clothing, that thing. You get that level of the pyramid built, then you can ascend up to the higher levels of self-actualization and knowing who you are and oh, blah, 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 blah. But you got to get that base level first, which means you got to get enough money to provide security and ability, and then you can build off of that to really figure out who you are and grow your inner self, Okay. I mean, this is what, this is how the world thinks. And unfortunately, we are part of the world. And we often, too often, let the world influence how we think. Okay? So Christ is going to kind of upend the common teaching of the world. That you need to make sure you're able and secure in your treasures or else you cannot be happy. Okay? And what he tells us is, is that the things that you think are making you able and secure are going to go away. Either today or tomorrow or next week or when you die. They're going to go away. None of those things are going to give you eternal security. You want to know why? Because none of those things can keep you from dying. There's people frozen in tubes trying to see if they can come. They get woken back up later or whatever. Guess what? If you get out of the refrigerator, you're still going to die, brother. I promise. You can freeze yourself for a thousand years. You're still going to die. So all that money and all that time and all that effort you put into trying to make yourself secure, you're still going to die. It's still going to happen. It's ultimately going to end 
all of your security. Well, what Christ tells us is, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Christ says this is the solution. Quit putting your time and your effort and your security and your ability into the things of this world like money because they're not stable. You're putting your security, you're hedging your bet on an insecure source. That doesn't make sense. Okay? This is the same example of building things. Do you build it on the sand or do you build it on the rock? Well, why don't you why do you not build it on the sand? Because sand is not secure. Again, they keep having to like run out into the ocean and just pump, you know, sand back onto the beach. Why? Because that stuff just keeps washing away and it just keeps boggling their minds why it keeps doing that. Okay? Because that's just what it does. <laughs> so it's an insecure foundation. But that's what we have built up in our minds as being the one sole source of our happiness. So he says instead, put your treasures in heaven. This is if you look in the book of Malachi in chapter 3. And you look at kind of the nature, the thought pattern of the children of Israel. Okay. Right before they're about to get kind of put on probation for about 400 years, okay? Um, You see in Malachi's writing, as God is preaching to them through Malachi, he's condemning them for what they have done, how far off they have gotten, how far astray they have gone at this point. And he's calling them back, saying, just repent, turn, come back, you know, come back to God, basically, is what he tells them. But as they have talked to him, God has said, you are robbing me said, because I am keeping my end of the covenant and you are not. I am keeping my end, have kept my end, all the way back to when I told Abraham about it. I have kept my end of this agreement. You have consistently failed. Starting in Exodus and going all the way through to Malachi, you have consistently turned away from me and the things that I promised that I would do for you if you just followed me. So, so you're robbing me. You know, I'm giving you things, I'm giving my end of the bargain, you're not giving yours, you're robbing me. And he goes into and talks about they are robbing him in particular in tithes and offerings and all these things. But this is what I wanted to get to that I wanted you to hear. This is the viewpoint of the children of Israel. Now, these are people specifically called out and organized by God in a point in time when there was no other. There was no other nation. There was no other people called by his name except the nation of Israel. They had everything from him. They had a land that wasn't theirs. They had words from him that weren't theirs. He had sent them prophets and priests, direct things from his mouth to correct them, guide them, and direct them in their lives. They had everything. They had all ability for stability, ability, and security. And this is what they say about serving God. In verse 14 of Malachi 3, Ye have said, God is telling Israel, you have said this, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Israel's response to, let's say, five to six hundred years of existence that would not have been there is it's so vain to worship and serve God. And where's the prophet in it? 
we have been robbing you. We have been not giving our tithes. We have not been giving our offerings. Because you know what? Really, when we do kind of a risk to uh, profit, a profit to benefit, uh, cost evaluation scenario here, we realize, you know what? It's really, this is expensive to serve you, God. And we don't have any profit in it. I mean, this whole thing of giving you tithes. Why am I going to give 10% of my first fruit, the best of the fruit that there is? Why am I just going to give that to you? That doesn't make sense for business. Let me give you the last 10%. I'll take the first 10%. I will replant it. I'll get a better growth next year. And then I'll give you again the last 10%. And we'll just keep this on. And I'm getting benefits. You're still getting your 10%. What does it matter, you know? Let's talk about profit loss analysis. But that's where the people had come to. It's vain to worship you. It's vain to serve you. It does not profit me. And unfortunately, that is where when we put our trust in money and those kind of things and put our treasure in those kind of things, it ultimately draws us away from God to that conclusion. That we get to a point where we go, you know what? I really just don't see any benefit in serving God. Heard a young man this past week who said, you know, the reason why I lost... You know, lost kind of faith in God for about a year and a half is because me and my wife were praying for a kid, we're praying for a baby, and it didn't happen in the time frame that I wanted it to. So I just kind of figured God what didn't exist. And then he gave me twins. Said and he said, and then I guess I realized God was real. Like Okay, so if we're basing our you know service to God Okay, off of a profit-loss analysis. If we have gotten to the point that we view our relationship with God as a business transaction, that if God doesn't seemingly okay, profit me in the time frame, time space, or in whatever way I conduct or concoct that he should profit me, if I don't see those things on the ledger and I'm in the red at the end of the year, well, I'm going to cut my losses. God doesn't seem to have profited me enough, and so therefore, no more serving God. I have tithed, you haven't blessed me. That's why this kind of gets into that whole health, wealth, and prosperity thing, okay? I've sown my seed, Lord, and I'm not a millionaire, and I got cancer, so now what? You know, you didn't profit me, so I'm cutting you loose. When we try to rely so much on the natural in that sense... And ultimately, it's going to draw our heart away from true ability, true security, and true happiness, which is only in Jesus Christ. And that's where he says, put your trust, your hope, your ability, your security in heaven. Our heart should be in Jesus Christ. In him, we should find Ability, And that goes to where Christ gives us life, Christ gives us strength, Christ gives us hope. Okay? Incorruptible, unfading, and unstealable. Okay? Hope. In Acts chapter 17 and 28, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Put our treasure there. He gives us security. As we've said multiple times from John chapter 6, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Boom. Security. I have security in Jesus Christ. That in him I am kept preserved, kept safe. You know, I find ultimate security in the eternal one that's never going to go back on his promises. Security. 
We sing the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And lastly, happiness. That true joy comes in Jesus Christ alone. And how can we be happy in something that is so easily taken away from us? How can we be happy in the things of this world that are so easily taken away from us? You think that special car is going to make you happy. Well, it's going to be real happy when you wrap it around a tree. And then what? You think that whatever, whatever it is, that special, this thing. You know, people, oh, well, if I just had a pool, it would make me happy. Yeah, until the thing gets a tear in the liner, and now there you go, $10,000 more. Good luck, you know. Get happiness out of, even out of relationships, Okay. If I put all of my happiness in my spouse, my spouse is the sole source of my happiness. I'm going to tell you, it's going to let you down. Okay. Now, if you ask Emily, that wouldn't be the case because I make her happy every single day. Okay. I'm still batting a thousand. But ultimately, if our happiness is in anything in this world, people or things included... It's going to let us down because it is corruptible, fadable, and can be taken away from us very easily. And we can rest assured in this, that if our heart is not in Jesus, if our treasure is not in Jesus, our heart will not be there either. If we do not rely on Jesus Christ as our sole source of ability and security, and happiness, then whatever that other thing is out here is ultimately going to drag us away. And that's where he gets into next time that we'll look at where he talks about where our eye is looking and where, our, uh, where we are putting our, our, our who, which master we are serving. Okay, He gets into that scenario to kind of explain to us it's going to drag you away. It's not possible to serve two masters. It's not possible to, quote, have your cake and eat it too, okay? It doesn't work out that way, right? So instead, what we should be encouraged or what we should desire and what we look for this morning is that in Jesus Christ alone, I find my happiness, I find my security, and I find my ability. That in Him I live and breathe and work and do and then in Him I have all that I could ever, ever need. So let's hope and trust in Him and look to Him as our all-sufficient aid. May God bless us to think on these things.